You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 19th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The Iranians have signaled to them with this calibrated attack. We can mess up your future economic plans anytime we want. Saudi Arabia versus Iran, the latest on the escalating clash between the two regional rivals. My guests Holly Dagres and Tim Marshall will discuss that and the day's other news, including at least 30 people are killed in another bomb attack in Afghanistan. We'll ask whether the US really has a plausible plan for creating lasting peace in the country. Plus, why is Boris Johnson so befuddled by the public? And just the excitement that this is Asia's first Rugby World Cup and it's in Japan. You know, you really feel it. Why the Rugby World Cup matters to more than just its hosts, Japan. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Holly Dagres, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and editor of the Atlantic Council's Iran Source, and Tim Marshall, former diplomatic editor of Sky News, author and editor of thewhatandthewhy.com. We will start with Saudi Arabia, which appears to be trying to talk itself into some sort of retaliation for the weekend's drone and missile strikes on two oil facilities. Saudi Arabia blames Iran. Iran blames Houthi rebels in Yemen, who have indeed claimed responsibility but are also heavily backed by Iran so the difference may be somewhat academic. US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in Saudi Arabia and has described the attacks as an act of war, a phrase not traditionally followed by, but these things happen, never mind. Um, Holly, first of all, act of war, is that a fair enough characterisation of what occurred on Saturday? Well, I think for starters, you have to remember that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is the United States Secretary of State. He is not the United the, the Saudi Arabian Indeed foreign minister. Not. And I think that making that kind of claim as saying that the United States should go to war on behalf of Saudi Arabia, which is something that U.S. President Donald Trump tweeted the other day. I, I think it's also worth noting that um, U.S. President Donald Trump has actually been walking back on his statements, and it seems that he's de-escalating things by saying that he's going to sanction Iran, although there's not really much left to sanction the country. So I think Pompeo may be saying one thing, but Trump is saying another thing in this case. Uh, We will come back to Trump's attitude on this, which is curious in some respects and yet in keeping with his previously expressed views on the region. Um, Tim, I first of all wanted to talk about Saudi Arabia's case against Iran. They have advanced several tablefuls of bits of drone and missile and said these are all Iranian. Are you persuaded by Saudi Arabia's case so far? Yes, for a number of reasons. One, it is true that the Saudi uh, missile defence systems were pointing south towards Yemen. Um, So that's probably how they got through because they didn't probably come from Yemen. It's unlikely that the Houthis have got the kit and the technological know-how to carry out something like that. Drones, yes, cruise missiles, pinpoint. They went right through the very centre of the terminal targets. Um, Saudi Iran has the motive uh, because they're calibrating their attacks and they think they can get away with it and they may have got away with this. And then the actual stuff that they laid out. Uh, I'm persuaded of it. Uh, But the the response, to continue the the previous question and answer, uh, has not been bellicose. 
and I don't think they're going to retaliate yet. Mr. Pompeo's get-out clause is the same as Mr. Trump's. The United States wasn't attacked. And the last bit of the jigsaw that not enough people are concentrating on is, you probably know, Aramco, the Saudi state oil company, Mm. is going to float percentages of it next year. Um, It's valued at up to $1.5 trillion. That money that's going to come from the flotation is supposed to pay for the 20-year economic policy that the young leader has announced. The Iranians have signaled to them with this calibrated attack, we can mess up your future economic plans anytime we want. Oil price went to $20 plus, but also the refinery uh, was, was massively damaged. Now, I think this is the last chance. This is the last time that Iran can do something before there will be a military response. But at the moment, the response looks like, as Holly said, sanctions, cyber attack, quite probably kinetic attack, as it's known, military attack. You can't rule it out yet, but not for several days yet. We've got the United Nations General Assembly next week. Uh, Holly, on that particular thought, and going back to what you were saying earlier about Donald Trump... If this was Iran, and the the length of possible suspects is a fairly short one, but if it was Iran, might they have been working on the assumption that from what we can glean so far of Donald Trump, he doesn't appear especially interested in war. They might have been thinking back to June when they knocked down an American drone. Again, if we're buying Donald Trump's version of events, US planes were airborne on their way to retaliate and he called them back. Are Iran thinking that Donald Trump is, if you like, a bit of a soft touch? I think you're absolutely right on that point, and it's actually been well known amongst the Iranian government officials. We've said, heard that from President Hassan Rouhani and Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif that Trump does not want war. But what they've been continuously pointing at is what um, Zarif calls the B team, which is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, no longer National Security Advisor John Bolton, um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed of the Emirates. So. I think they they have this understanding. And if we really to look back for a moment, like, why would Iran do this? The fact of the matter is that the United States withdrew from a multilateral agreement in May 2018 and essentially, in the view of the Iranians, declared economic warfare on the country by deciding thus that they're going to basically put an oil embargo on the country, no longer allow the country to sell its oil. And the Iranians had continuously threatened, well, we're going to straight close the Strait of Hormuz. They never said how they were going to do it, but they've obviously made it more precarious to travel through the Strait of Hormuz in the past few months. They've taken down a U.S. drone, and now if we assume they may have also been partaking in these oil tanker excuse me, these oil facilities in Saudi Arabia. So for them, they're they're trying to send a message here to the United States that we're willing to go all the way with this if you're going to continue with this maximum pressure policy. Holly Dagres and Tim Marshall will be back in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has called on his main rival for the job, the centrist and former general Benny Gantz, to join him in forming a government of national unity. The change of strategy reflects Netanyahu's weakened position following the country's inconclusive general election. Three former executives at the firm that operated the Fukushima nuclear plant have been cleared of professional negligence by a court in Tokyo. It was the only criminal case to arise out of the disaster. The plant, which was operated by the Tokyo Electric Power Company, was hit by a huge tsunami back in 2011. 
And Time magazine has published a photo of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wearing brownface at a private gala back in 2001. Mr. Trudeau says he deeply regrets his actions. The emergence of the photo comes during an election campaign for the prime minister. Canada votes for its new leader next month. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. You're listening to Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with Tim Marshall and Holly Dagres. And let's look now at Afghanistan, where the Taliban continue to press their case for a resumption of peace talks by staging gruesome reminders of the alternative. At least 30 people have been killed and at least 95 injured by a truck bomb near a hospital in Kalat, the capital of Zabul province in the country's south. It's one of the worst of a recent offensive of near-daily similar attacks by the Taliban. Elsewhere, the Taliban's chief negotiator Sher Mohammed Abbas Stanekzai emphasized that their doors were open should the U.S. wish to continue talking. President Donald Trump declared the talks dead earlier this month following a previous attack. Uh, Tim, is there the faintest chance that the Taliban of all people were perhaps not negotiating in entirely good faith? Never let it be said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the, the... The faction was... Probably negotiating. We should remind that the yes. Taliban is not yes. by any means a monolith. And this, this is, I think I'm so surprised at most of the coverage. Most of the coverage keeps saying the Taliban. The people negotiating, it's Mullah uh, Baradar. Mullah Baradar has got his own faction, which is within the Quetta Taliban faction. The Quetta Taliban faction is only part of the wider Taliban. And so... <sighs> The Taliban is not negotiating with the United States. A section of it is. There are other sections of the Taliban which realise that they could be able to get a military victory all the way into Kabul at some point if the Americans go away, which is why they're not going away yet. And so I think it's quite probable the negotiations will swing back at some point with that faction of the Taliban, and the Americans and that faction of the Taliban can edge towards... Uh, their peace agreement, which of course is a good thing, but any time you cover it, you've got to point out that there are other sections of the Taliban who are going to say, "No, we think we can win." You know, and this uptick in violence um, is precisely because of that. The Taliban killed uh, a number of people just before the, the, the agreement. Well, after Zalmay, the, the U.S. envoy, suggested there was going to be a deal, they killed a bunch of people, including an, an American staff sergeant, and. Trump could hardly be seen to invite the Taliban over when they've just killed American staff sergeant. And, and now this new wave of violence is because the, the hardliners think, no, we, we don't particularly want talks, we can keep going. So you have to frame it uh, like it's a faction of the Taliban. Holly, is that dynamic that Tim outlines there what is basically underpinning all of this, even if we do recognise that the Taliban is not a unified monolith that all thinks with one mind and speaks with one voice, would they have a general sense that the United States has long since lost interest in this war in Afghanistan, really doesn't want to be there anymore, and if they just wait them out, they will get the country back in due course? I think that's a very valid point. I mean, uh, it's known as America's Forgotten War and Longest War. And we have to remember that U.S. President Donald Trump 
is just in there with these talks because he kind of wants to make the he's the ultimate deal maker. He's done this with North Korea. He's hoping to do this with Iran. He almost did this with the Taliban just a few days before the 9-11 anniversary. That Those would have been weird optics. Oh, it would have been awful. I mean, his own administration, including Vice um, President Mike Pence, said it was a bad idea. And I think it actually was to his advantage that it didn't work out because I, I don't think that it would have led to anything. But I think he was trying to put on this whole Camp David Accord look where he's brought the Egypt, the Taliban and the Afghan government together and he's made some sort of deal. Um, uh, but looking back at the bigger picture here, the, the Taliban knows that the U.S. really wants out, especially Trump himself. So they, if anything, these, um, these rec- this uptick in violence is kind of a signaling, well, we're going to keep this going and maybe they're going to actually leave the country sooner. And so that that's something also to consider as well. And given everything that's been happening over the past few months, I would say that the Taliban has the upper hand in this situation, knowing full well that the U.S. wants to leave Afghanistan. Yeah, they've they've got 14,000 troops left from a high of about 80,000. The old saying is, uh, you've got the watches, but we've got the time. (laughs) We're going to wait you out. And that is exactly what's going on. my, I mean, last time I was down in Helmand Province was a good four years ago when I realised that the Brits and the Americans were going to withdraw. And my view was that within four, this is where I'm wrong, within four years, the Taliban will have taken almost the whole country except the capital. I may be a couple of years out because they, they now control about 54% of territory. The capital is uh, strong and safe. Well, it's not safe, but, you know, they're not going to take it. And the best case scenario for the Americans is to get out there, pretend they're going out with dignity, leave enough special forces and a trained Afghan army to hold up the perimeter fence around Kabul and then pretend that it's still the capital of a united country. Well, on that thought, Holly, at this point, what because Kabul is not merely the capital of Afghanistan, it is also a capital inhabited by what is the legitimate elected government of Afghanistan. Uh, at this point, what duty does the United States owe that government because, and the people who voted for it and the people who work for it? Because if the United States withdraws from Afghanistan completely, it's not going to go well for Afghanistan's actual elected government, is it? Not at all. I mean, even these talks with the Taliban was actually done without the Ghani government's involvement, and they did a lot of... um, a lot of the time, they weren't even sure what was going on. Even with these camp, this Camp David talk that they were considering, I mean, it was almost political suicide if Ghani didn't go So he, right before an Afghan election coming up. So for them, they felt like they were kind of put in this corner where we have to do whatever the United States say it says because we need to keep them happy. But it doesn't necessarily mean that what's happening with the Taliban is actually going to lead to something. And the last time uh, a a government in Kabul that was sponsored by an outside power, when the outside power went away, which was the Russians, Mm. I think, was it Najibullah? It was Najibullah. Najibullah was the president. And Najibullah ended up being strung upside down from a lamppost by the Taliban. That is quite possibly the fate of this current government if the Americans just run hell for leather uh, for the door, which and and that would be seen as an abandonment. It would be seen as a betrayal. It would be seen certainly as leaving without dignity and a loss. Like I said, they want to come out with some sort of dignity and pretend it's a score draw.
That being the case, just finally on this subject, Holly, aren't the Taliban being daft in not giving America that that fig leaf, if you will, that allows America to claim, well, we did our best, we made a difference, we have improved things somewhat, and now we're leaving? Well, for them, um, they weren't. They were actually willing to um, talk with the United States, I think. But they told the U.S. that we would not come to Camp David until actual agreement happens, because for them it was also problematic. Let's go to the United States, the our enemy, and like let's meet with the president, but we don't have a deal. So I, I think even mm. they understood that that was not a good. And optics. then they won't talk to the Kabul government because, of course, before the Americans invaded, the Taliban was the government. So they're saying this is a puppet government. When you know why. Why would we cheapen ourselves talking to them? And so the Yanks and the Taliban in all its factions have got to come together. I, I think there will be movement within the next few months. OK, well, finally, on our news panel to British politics, and we will pause here for British listeners to roll into whimpering fetal huddles. While deliberations resume at the Supreme Court as to whether Britain's government was within its rights to suspend Britain's parliament, irritable Eurocrats have set a two-week deadline for Boris Johnson to submit to some sort of actual plan for replacing the Irish backstop. Uh, we will come presently to Boris Johnson's recent attempt to win the hearts and minds of the British public, but we should look at the politics of this first, Tim. Um, do you think any such plan exists? Is there a plan that goes to another school and that's why we haven't met it yet? Yes. <laughs> you do think there's a plan? I think there's a plan. Uh, whether I think it'll work is another matter entirely. Also, that deadline is very artificial. It's the Prime Minister of Finland and the Prime Minister of France that have come up with the right you've got till the end of September. We want something in writing. It's not the EU that has said that. So it's it's that's a bit flexible, perhaps. But um, whether the plan such as it is is solid enough to be written down at some point and presented in text because this is you know it has to be in text so that the EU can go through line by line and negotiate everything that is in it it appears to be some way from that and it's part of the hardball chicken poker that's being played which will be played right up to the last hour of the European Union summit, which Britain will attend in the middle of next month. I am trying to picture in my head what a game of hardball chicken poker would look like. <laughs> uh, very violent. Yeah, very violent, if, yeah. if actually played. Uh, Holly, do you get the sense that maybe the UK is betting on the fact at this point that the EU is so fed up that they'll agree to almost anything just to get this over with? I mean, it's really hard to say. I'm no, I'm, I'm not a British citizen. I haven't been following the storyline long enough, but um, I, I, I think they are frustrated at what's happening. It's been going on for a long time, and I think there is some sense that this is, this is go, has been going on for far too long. But I, I also am under the impression that the EU hopes that somehow the cooler heads will prevail. Maybe this Brexit thing won't happen, and everybody can go off into the distance, being very happy with everything. <laughs> it's, it's a cheer thought it isn't going to happen. Um, Tim, we should look at Boris Johnson's uh, travails as of yesterday. He visited Whips Cross Hospital, uh, a 10-minute walk from where I live, really, fact fans. In, did, he, in, did, he, did he pop round? Uh, he, well, he may have done. I wasn't in. Uh, um, but he, he was accosted by a member of the public. Um, and 
he responded bafflingly badly. <laughs> he he appeared completely flummoxed. Uh, he attempted to reassure the gentleman that this wasn't a press jolly and that there were no press present, and there clearly was well, because when he they said were, there are no press present, he gestured towards, towards the cameras, the, 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 the literal <laughs> cameras. Um, Bizarre. It was all extremely peculiar, and it's extremely peculiar because one of the selling points of Boris Johnson was supposed to be. Uh, that he's able to connect with the public, that he's able to talk to people. And I confess that I'm surprised by how bad he has been at it because I've, I've interviewed him at least once. I've met him socially on several occasions. And when you meet the guy, whatever else you think of him, he is very affable and yes. charming and funny and agreeable, as you've you've written yourself in your recent book, available in all good stores. Um, why is he so bad at it now that he's Prime Minister? <laughs> I, I, I think it's... Uh, uh, <laughs> I think it's um, seriously that that he 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 is used to being affable and people being and falling for that charm. And so when they don't fall for that charm, he's a bit. Oh, he, right, he, right. he doesn't. He doesn't have a plan B. Yeah. But let me also row back a little bit. There was the last week he was in uh, Doncaster, and someone came up and castigated him for for because uh, he was uh, you know Britain should remain in the EU and he was getting castigated and that went on on the bulletins but Doncaster voted 74% to leave mm. and the local media and he cares more about the local media because this is part of the strategy didn't big that up they bigged up you know Boris came to town and was mobbed um, two more briefly when he uh, walked out on the pre the press conference with the Luxembourg prime minister the Guardian headline uh, was Johnson humiliated by Luxembourg. Um, that, that may well be the case. It may be true. But it doesn't matter what The Guardian said because the 52% of the population that voted leave, its view of that would be, well done, Boris, standing up to these Johnny foreigners, uh, sticking it to them and uh, doing the right thing by just saying, I'm not playing your silly game. And the last one, uh, this is more difficult, yesterday's hospital... Um, the man was shouting at him in a hospital. Now, the man's child was there and he said he wasn't getting proper care. He then is revealed as a Labour activist as if that makes him not a caring father. Indeed. That was nonsense. But it is contextual. And it's contextual because, for the same reason, the 17.2 million people that voted leave will think, well, why, why is this man shouting at, shouting at Boris in a hospital? It doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter that, that he, he sometimes gets heckled. We're beyond that sort of politics. As Trump said, I can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and still get elected. It's almost as if people see exactly what they want to see. Um, Holly, Boris Johnson, to his minor credit, has since tweeted that the, the chap in the hospital was entirely within his rights to make his views known to the Prime Minister whose wages he pays, etc. Is there at least, if we're trying to end our news panel on an upbeat note, something optimistic and something cherishable in the fact that it's still possible for a member of the public to bowl up to the Prime Minister and give them an earful? Because this it's been a while since this has happened to a US president I'm, th I'm thinking <laughs> well I, I think Trump gets it literally every time he steps out of the White House I mean he gets it from the foreign press at this point point. Um, I think it's important that the public express its grievances or heckle the president or mem or prime minister and I think the day that um, a public citizen a excuse me a private citizen doesn't do that I think that's where the worry lies that they're, they're they don't care enough to express their grievances or demand a change or detention to an, an, an important topic of the day or time.
Holly Dagres and Tim Marshall, thank you both. In a moment, rugby, the World Cup of which begins today in Japan. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And now for a review from our editorial floor. Monocle 24's Rhys James examines why the success of the Rugby World Cup, which starts today, matters to more besides just Japanese rugby fans. The 2019 Rugby World Cup, one of the world's biggest and most prestigious sporting events, is getting underway in Japan. It represents a massive soft power coup for the country. Not only has the elite tournament never been held there before, but it is also the first time that the Rugby World Cup has been hosted by an Asian nation. So what should we expect? Here's Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief, Fiona Wilson. Well, I think you'll get some very enthusiastic support, that's for sure. I don't know if you were following uh, the training match that Wales held in uh, Kitakyushu and 15,000 people turned up just for the training on a Monday morning. I think it was a big surprise to the team. They were absolutely thrilled and, you know, the, the crowd sang the Welsh national anthem. I mean, it was quite a spectacle. And I think that's going to be replicated up and down the country. I mean, there's a lot of enthusiasm, very dedicated fans here. You know, rugby is, you know, it's a niche sport. But I think just the excitement that this is Asia's first Rugby World Cup and it's in Japan, you know, you really feel it. And, you know, you see it in the streets, even in Tokyo. Our street has got the banners up and you're seeing pictures of it everywhere at the moment. And you mentioned that the tournament is taking place right across the country. Can you tell us about some of the host cities? Yeah, so there are 12 venues and what they've tried to do is really spread them up and down Japan so that the whole country gets a, you know, a, a bit of the excitement. And, there, you know, there are some very interesting ones like Kamaishi, which was a place that was really destroyed in the earthquake and tsunami in 2011. That is one of the venues which is very exciting, I think, there. And I think, you know, that's quite an emotional venue because obviously, you know, been through very, very tough times. Actually, the final for the uh, Rugby World Cup will be held in Yokohama. I think a lot of people were hoping that the national, the new national stadium, which will be ready for the Olympics, would be ready for the Rugby World Cup. But it's not quite ready. So the final will be in Yokohama, which is, you know, an amazing stadium and absolutely enormous. So, you know, I think up and down Japan, there's, there's going to be a lot of interest. And I think they've really tried to to share it out so that the whole country is involved. And this is going to be quite a different kind of cultural experience for people kind of going to Japan to follow rugby. What can people expect? What will they be in for? Well, one of the things that made me smile was about tattooing, which became a huge issue. I mean, anyone who follows pretty much any sport now knows that most athletes are absolutely covered in tattoos these days. Um, tattoos are still a very tricky subject in Japan, and people don't like to see them in gyms. They don't want to see them in hot springs. If, if you have a tattoo in a swimming pool, for example, you have to cover it up wear a vest. And the rugby players have been asked that when they're going to places like gyms or hot springs, please cover up. Obviously, on the pitch, on the day, they can they will reveal their tattoos. But, you know, they just said when they're out and about, could they please kind of adhere to the uh, the cultural preferences in Japan? Although having said that, some onsen said for the six weeks of the tournament, they're going to relax those rules. But just it's up to the owners of the hot springs to, uh, you know, say whether they're going to allow people in or not. That was Monocle's Tokyo Bureau Chief, Fiona Wilson. Let's hope she keeps her tattoos covered up over the course of the next six weeks. 
Now, the Rugby World Cup, of course, comes as Japan keeps one eye on next year's Olympic Games. Here's Sir David Warren, who is the UK's ambassador in Tokyo between 2008 and 2012. I'm sure that it will be a trial run for the Olympics. This is the largest Japanese-hosted event since the Football World Cup many years ago, and that was shared with the Republic of Korea. So the Japanese will certainly see this nationwide World Cup tournament as an opportunity to demonstrate that they have the facilities, they have the organisation, they have the managerial ability to pull off one of the world's big iconic events. And they will have the Olympics of 2020 very much in mind as they demonstrate all those skills. And do you think that both these events help put Japan onto the sporting map, not just on the managerial map, but the sporting map as well? Well, of course, Japan has been on the sporting map before. They hosted the Olympics in 1964, and I mentioned the Football World Cup, which was uh, in the early years of the last decade. So they've been on the international sporting map for some time, but the... Rugby World Cup is important for two reasons. Firstly, they've been trying to get this World Cup for many years. This was the third attempt, I think, at which they had attempted, they'd sought to host the event and they were finally successful. And rugby itself is a sport where the Japanese have grown in international profile over the last few decades, not least in the 2015 World Cup in the UK, when they beat South Africa in Brighton in that memorable match, and suddenly the world realised that the Japanese team, the modern Japanese team, were a force to be reckoned with. enormous pressure, a win would just be the upset of all upsets. Of all time. Of, in the history of sports. And what do you think it does for Japan's brand on an international scale? What does it do for Shinzo Abe and his government? Well, uh, look, looking at it in a non-political sense, those of us who are friends of Japan and spent our lives living in Japan, visiting Japan, and who know the efficient organisation of Japanese life, we know also the, the warmth of the Japanese personality, we can see that this is going to be an opportunity for the Japanese to demonstrate what they call omotenashi, uh, that is a sense of hospitality, a sense of welcoming people from around the world for a major international event. And all the signs are that this is going to be a very powerful theme of the tournament. It's a nationwide tournament so that visitors to Japan, rugby supporters from all the various teams will see the whole of the country. The first uh, English match I think on this coming Saturday, we'll be in, up in Sapporo in the Northern Ireland, and there are stadia all over the country in all four islands, and indeed in the area affected by the terrible earthquake and tsunami eight years ago. So it's an opportunity to send a very strong sense of the Japanese brand of warmth, of hospitality, of welcoming across the country to an international audience. From Shinzo Abe's point of view, it's also very important. He's been Prime Minister for nearly seven years. He's still in a strong and pretty unassailable domestic political position. He doesn't have very strong political opposition. He doesn't have an obvious successor, although people are beginning to talk about one or two possible names. So he will see this as an opportunity to demonstrate that uh, the country that he leads politically is a country that has a very strong and attractive international profile. But although politics and sport are a little mixed in Japan, as in many other countries, and there are senior politicians who've played an important role in 
developing Japan's rugby capacity. This is a sporting tournament, not a series of political events, and I think that Japanese will be sensitive to the need to keep those issues separate. Sir David Warren, thanks for coming in. A lot, it seems, rests on the fortunes of Japan's Rugby World Cup. And with the Olympics just around the corner, the tournament's organisers and the country's leaders will be hoping that it's a resounding success. For Monocle 24, I'm Rhys James. That was Rhys James, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Alex Port-Felix. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 tomorrow, London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 